Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. So we both get around town on bikes, right? But you have a car. Yeah, I do. For long trips anyway, outside Paris. Yeah, yeah. So are you going to be able to use it and be able to get away for the school holidays that start this weekend? I mean, lots of people are worried because of petrol shortages in France these days. Yeah, a weeks-long strike at French oil refineries have left a third of French petrol stations dry or in difficulty. It looks like it might be coming to an end now. Workers at all but two sites have gone back to work and the petrol seems to be beginning to, to flow again. So it might be good news for yeah, you. Yeah. Um, so the reason for this strike is that workers for these oil companies say they should get a slice of the huge windfall profits that these companies have made. They were asking for a 10% raise. Mm, 10%, not bad, eh? Mm. Apparently, Total Energies agreed to an average pay increase of 7%, but for next year, mm. the leftist CGT union, the main one, was not happy about the deal, but they have recognised there's less of an appetite now for continuing the strike. And the petrol shortages definitely sent car owners into a frenzy. I mean, people were, were blocked, they were unable to get to work, there was just massive searching for open petrol stations. Yeah, lots of car sharing online, that's quite good news in mm. a way, and apps to show you know where the closest station is with petrol. And, and the government actually resorted to requisitioning mm. some striking staff at some of these refineries. Yeah, forcing workers to get the petrol flowing. Mm -hmm. It's a legal measure, but very controversial. Yeah. And then on top of all this, Tuesday, there was a national strike um, in general for higher wages. You had a lot of people taking part, teachers, I mean, the refinery workers, uh, train transit workers. It's also tapping into anger from the opponents of the government at the budget, which is currently being passed without a vote in Parliament. Yeah, using the famous 49.3 clause of the French Constitution. Mm -hmm. It allows the government to pass budgets without a vote in Parliament. Yeah, opposition MPs say this is a strong-arm tactic, though it has been used many times before in France. Yeah, uh, most often it has to be said by governments on the left. Mm -hmm. So petrol shortages, budgets being rammed through Parliament. Oh, I think it's time for a break now. Yeah, the Toussaint <laughs> school holidays next week. People are going to load up their cars with petrol, take off. I hope you can. Me too. Comme vous tous, j'ai découvert l'existence des NFT. NFT. Tout le monde veut être un NFT. Tout le monde veut être un NFT. Tout le monde veut être un NFT. So, NFT, NFTs. I'm going to go down a digital rabbit hole. Alison, do you know what NFTs are? Sarah, I know they're related to digital art mm -hmm. and to this cryptocurrency business. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that I don't own any of these things. <laughs> Neither no. do I. Um, though if you talk to some people, maybe we all should be owning them. Mm. Anyway, NFT is an acronym, non-fungible token. It means a unique identifier. And it's something that is part of blockchain technology that is what underlies cryptocurrency. So you're right there. Yeah, so it's such an Anglophone space, all of this, isn't mm -hmm. it? That even the French use the term blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Uh, <laughs> rather than the rather painful chaîne de bloc. Chaîne de bloc, mm. yeah, like most of the web language, actually. Um, to be very simple, a blockchain basically stores data in a decentralized way. It's kind of a running tally of information that's spread out over computer networks around the world. And an NFT is an entry on a blockchain, which allows you to identify something that's digital making it unique. So images, video clips, music, that kind of thing. And tweets. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Didn't the founder of Twitter uh, sell the first tweet as an NFT last year for, I think, $2.9 million? Indeed, yeah. It has since dropped enormously in value. Oh, but um, Well, for the buyer, I suppose. But um, people have made millions buying and selling NFTs in the last couple of years. It's a market full of speculation. It started and has been concentrated in the U.S., but is now spreading around the world. These days, the technology has been intriguing artists and art buyers. Here in France, some galleries have been starting to explore the concept. The Goldstein Satort Gallery in Paris's Gallery District in the 7th arrondissement put up a show last year of paintings and NFTs, a kind of hybrid show. It's one of the first galleries in France to do so. The gallery specializes in urban art, so street art, graffiti, murals, that kind of thing. Since November last year, they've commissioned and put on sale 17 NFTs, several of which have sold. And I was interested in the draw of these things for the gallery and for art collectors. Okay, confirm on phone sign. So even to get in the website, I need to. Ala Goldstein sits behind the bar of her gallery. It's a high table made of sleek, light-colored stone, and she's logging into a laptop computer to access the gallery's digital art collection. On the walls are rather large oil paintings and prints, all inspired by fashion, part of the current show La Mode, La Mode, La Mode in partnership with Paris Fashion Week. Behind her is a Cubist-style painting of Jean-Paul Gaultier, who looks eerily like Vladimir Putin. It's the work of one of 15 artists on display, including an Armenian designer who made an all-digital work, a digital fashion show that's playing in a loop on a large screen. On the Samsung uh, tall screen, right in the heart of the gallery. And that's why Goldstein is logging into the computer to find the NFTs of the piece, which is for sale. The Goldstein Satort Gallery started with a show in November last year called Cyberpunk, with NFTs accompanying paintings and prints inspired by digital fantasy movies like The Matrix. There were eight NFTs of astrological signs. So we had like Cyber Scorpio, Cyber Virgo, Cyber Aquarius. We figured that it would be interesting and um, in tune with time and actuality to start making hybrid exhibitions, having original artwork, but also an original collection of NFTs. We wanted to make animated GIFs. We wanted something to be moving, so we would have static original artworks on the wall, and then we would have a GIF on our screen. The idea was to showcase digital art because we wanted to show that there are different playgrounds in that sphere. But an animated GIF is not an NFT. It needs to be minted or logged on a blockchain so it gets a certificate of authenticity, which makes it unique and creates its value. The gallery listed its NFTs on a platform called Rarible, inscribing them on the Ethereum blockchain, whose cryptocurrency is Ether, second to Bitcoin. As a gallery, we minted everything. We really wanted to kind of extrapolate the model of the gallery to the NFT world that we created. So we thought, okay, in terms of pricing, how are we going to price everything? The pricing uh, was uh, kind of a, an interesting discussion, but we did a lot of artists for whom it was their first NFT. So it's like when you're starting your career in the art field, so we extrapolated that model also on, okay, who's new in the NFT world, who already had some sales. And uh, we did, we thought, okay, it's going to be like a limited edition, but of 10 for our first collection. So for each astrological sign, we did 10 NFTs. 
And that way we thought, okay, we're going to put them like at 0.1 Ethereum, which is relatively accessible. At the time, it was about 350 euros or like 400 euros. It was fluctuating. But yeah, we thought, okay, it's going to be like a limited edition lithography, let's say. And the NFTs have had some success, especially with artists who already had a big following, like the Greek street artist Insane51. He has this 3D technique, so you could look at his canvases with 3D glasses and uh, it's kind of like three paintings in one. With blue, you see one thing. With red, you see the other. And with two, it's like it's all dimensional. He made his very first NFT, Cyber Aquarius, which the gallery minted and put on sale for 0.4 Ether, or 1,700 euros at the time. It sold out like in five minutes since the moment we officially launched it. He has a big following, and the, the people who collect him, they really wanted to uh, have something on a different level. Like he does lithographies, serigraphies, prints, original artwork. So it was nice maybe to complete the collection with a digital piece of art. Some NFTs are records of life online. The first tweet, for example, was sold as an NFT. And some of the most expensive NFTs are computer-generated images that have little aesthetic value. But Goldstein sees possibilities in NFTs for artists as another medium, and she likes displaying them in the gallery alongside physical paintings. People can come and see it. So as much as some artists, they know that they could sell by themselves, for them it's extremely important that people see their artwork and they're not going to receive necessarily uh, visitors to their studio every day, but we do. The gallery has regular visitors. Goldstein explains the show, points to the paintings, and then the screen with the digital fashion show and a QR code on the wall. The QR code sends you to a page with our NFT collection, she says. Goldstein often hears skepticism about NFTs, but she says they're collectibles, like anything else. People collect stamps, right? You don't have it on display on a daily basis. You just take it out, look at it, sometimes show it to your kids, you know, and it's a, it's a different vibe. So it's like a digital, digital collection of things that you love. About half of those who buy physical artwork in this gallery are French. The rest are international. It's harder to identify the NFT buyers. You have either a person created his own profile and you can see who is it, or either it's just a, a code. Or we have people that come to the gallery and they scan the QR code and they do it in front of us, or we transfer them the NFT from our crypto wallet to their crypto wallet. Raphael, a 30-something consultant here in Paris, bought one of the 10 versions of Insane 51 Cyber Aquarius. It was the very first time that I bought an NFT. It was a way to test it out. It was her first, and so far only, NFT. She has bought physical art before, from the gallery and elsewhere. For physical art, I will focus more on the aesthetics, because if I buy it, it's to show it at home, so I'm not approaching it like an investor. But for this kind of product, which is not physical and won't get seen that much, it's more about the artist than the work of art itself. In other words, she figured this was a good investment. Raphael's interested in cryptocurrency, but she's still skeptical of NFTs. 
Ça reste que je considérerais comme un investissement à risque. Parce que I feel it is still a risky investment because NFT is a new technology. What will happen in a few years? It's hard to predict, especially with the extreme volatility of the currency. But it wasn't a bad opportunity to test it out. There are other avid NFT collectors, and not all are looking for original art. There are NFTs of documents, historical firsts. Gaspard Tertias, a software engineer in Angers, Western France, got interested in cryptocurrencies during the COVID lockdowns, when he was looking for ways to invest the money he'd save by not going out to drink with his friends. And he discovered NFTs. The first one he bought was an avatar. Like, you can go in uh, with what we call metaverse, even if there is no real metaverse existing yet, only proof of concept. Uh, so it's on one of this proof of concept metaverse called Decentraland, which are about a little hat, uh, like with a, a umbrella on the top. It was not really a good investment. I think it lost like a three quarter of, the, of its value, but it was my first one. Yeah. He since entered the world of NFTs, creating two startups around them. He had a coin and stamp collection when he was younger, but doesn't consider himself a collector in real life. But he has amassed a collection of NFTs linked to pop culture. I started to collect the first NFTs from uh, Disney, Marvel, uh, the first comic book from Marvel on, on NFTs, the first uh, DeLorean, the car from uh, Back to the Future also. So how does, how does like the DeLorean become an NFT? Like, how does that work? It's like a 3D model of the car. Uh, for the moment, it's only uh, on the blockchain on your phone, so you can show it around. But in the future, I, I hope, because I, I also like a bit video games, that I might uh, drive my DeLorean in uh, those virtual world and I'd be uh, one on, of the only ones who can drive the original DeLorean. Uh, that's a geek yeah. dream, you know. <laughs> For Tertias, it's hard to separate the collecting from the financial aspect of NFTs. I bought it because I liked it first. But if I want to be completely transparency like last january the collection had, i made a time 70 on its valuation now it's more like a time 10 we crashed a little bit of course if i if, if i can do something that i enjoy and get some revenue uh, with it why not yeah obviously there is a big aspect of speculation if we talk about nfts but also it's art lovers Back at the gallery, Ala Goldstein really believes in the power of NFTs to turn digital art into just another medium. And to me, initially, I am an art lover. I am an, an art enthusiast. I love the artists that we represent, so I really wanted them to try something new. While France and the rest of the world is trailing behind the United States in developing an NFT marketplace, Goldstein says France isn't that far behind. French artists are great digital artists, and they were very interested in all that crypto market initially. And um, France also developed some blockchains. And for the art, it actually fits with a certain aesthetic here. France was in, on the forefront of, let's say, the comic books. And, you know, in France and Belgium are very strong illustration schools. Moving from illustration to GIFs isn't too much of a stretch. Of course, NFTs are tied to cryptocurrencies, which are currently in free fall. The Goldstein isn't worried. Cryptocurrencies have crashed before, and they've always gone back up, she says. That means it's a good time to collect NFTs. The prices dropped so drastically that if it ever, like, it cannot go lower. If you buy an NFT now for 100 bucks, like, it, it, it's probably not going to go lower than that. If you like the art, then you have, like, a, a digital artwork for 100 bucks, which is insane. <laughs> so, Allison, are you ready to get into the game? 
Uh, let's just say I am not queuing up to buy an NFT. Sorry, Sarah. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm just too old for this yeah, gig. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure I am either, though. I mean, for 100 bucks, hmm. why not? Yeah. Anyway, some say that the massive speculation in the NFT world has peaked, but the believers say that beyond the market, the technology is actually quite interesting for artists. It means their art is traceable. So artists know when something is sold and resold, and they can actually build a profit cut into the contract. So like, you know, the physical art, it's secondary market where paintings can sell for millions. Often the artist gets nothing of that with digital art logged on a blockchain. In theory, the, hmm. uh, the artist can get something. What about the issue of security, though, of, of NFT, Sarah? I heard recently about a group of people here in France that, that were arrested for stealing millions in NFTs. Yeah, yeah. So they stole 2.5 million euros worth of Bored Ape Yacht Club NFTs. <laughs> so these are ape. computer ape. Yeah, these are computer generated cartoon images of apes um, and they've become coveted by celebrities and as a result there's a limited supply so they sell for millions. Hmm. Bon. Um, so these criminals did this through old-fashioned trickery. Uh, blockchains are hard to hack. Doesn't mean that people haven't tried but NFTs exist in a crypto wallet so if you get the code you own it and the key of course is to get access. These guys tricked five NFT owners into signing up for a website that they had made that promised to animate their static images of their apes. In signing up, these people handed over the login details for their NFTs and the criminals just took them over. Mm, there's a message in there somewhere, isn't there? Mm. Maybe you just shouldn't trust anyone online. Le pouce, c'est toi. L'index, c'est toi. L'auriculaire, c'est toi. L'annulaire, c'est toi. Je te connais sur le bout de mes doigts. Ah, que n'es-tu que tes doigts dont les marques s'effacent? So, of course, investigators tracking down crypto thieves are looking for traces online, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. in the real world, finding fingerprints at the scene of a crime is still a key way of tracking down a criminal and, crucially, the right one. Right. I guess fingerprints are unique to each person still. Yeah. Still. <laughs> still, yeah. Some things don't change. Uh, maybe in the metaverse it's mm. different. But anyway, and it was 120 years ago on the 24th of October 1902 that allegedly, for the first time, a murderer was arrested and convicted on the basis of fingerprints. And this was thanks to a method devised by a Frenchman, Alphonse Bertillon. He's come to be known as the father of forensic science. Mm, but if I understand correctly, he didn't get off to a very brilliant start. He failed medical school. Yeah, mm -hmm. luckily, his dad, who was a bit famous, found him a job in the criminal records office at police headquarters in Paris. So that was in 1879. 26-year-old uh, Alphonse became a records clerk with the mind-numbing job of copying the details of known criminals onto index cards. Mm. Five million or so files, tens of thousands of photos. You can imagine it was a big and very oh, wow. boring job. Yeah. Yeah. And what's more, he saw there were some flaws in the system. Such as what? The files were classified by name, so criminals could, well, just change their names uh, every time they got arrested. Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, and they could distort their facial features when they got photographed. But Bertillon noted that it was virtually impossible for any two people to share 
exactly the same body measurements. Mm. So he set about classifying photos of convicted criminals based on their different physical characteristics. He identified 11 of them, including things like the head circumference, arm span, length of your feet, hands, fingers, whatever. And he went around with his caliper measuring criminals and building up his own database, if you like, on paper, of course. This novel recording system was known as anthropometry or bertillonnage in French. Ah, so he got it named mm -hmm. after him. Um, I guess this is the very, very start of what we now have as facial recognition, which is now handed over to computers. Yeah. In the early days, though, his superiors thought it was all a bit of a joke. Uh, then by 1884, his methods had allowed the police to identify a number of habitual offenders and led to countless arrests. So he won them over, basically. He perfected his system by adding photographs of faces and profiles. And basically, Bertionnage got adopted by police forces in many parts of the world. And so then... How did fingerprinting arrive in all of this? Well, Bertillon's system had competition from the growing use of fingerprinting. An Englishman, for example, Francis Galton, had developed a system of classifying fingerprints. Initially, Bertillon dismissed fingerprinting, but he then changed his mind and he incorporated the four fingerprints from the right hand into his anthropometric record cards. His big moment came on the 17th of October 1902 when he was called to a murder scene a dentist's assistant, Joseph Rebel, had been strangled. Ooh. Yeah. Bertillon was shown fingerprints on a broken window. He took the shard of glass back to his lab and he found that they resembled fingerprints he'd previously collected of a man named Henri-Léon Schaeffer. The criminal was caught. Indeed. He described the similarities in his report on the 24th of October and Schaeffer then handed himself into the police and confessed. So I guess that cemented Bertillon's reputation as a top forensic scientist. Yeah, he was elevated to the rank of, of scientist and Bertillonnage was hailed the world over. But he didn't really die a hero, did he? No, his reputation was sorely tainted in 1894 when he was called on to analyse handwriting on a torn and damaged bit of paper. It was an extremely important piece of evidence because it was the only piece suggesting Captain Alfred Dreyfus had been selling military secrets to the Germans, a claim that turned out to be false, of mm -hmm. course. Bertillon was adamant that the French Jewish captain was guilty and after very quickly comparing his real writing with the note, he declared Dreyfus had indeed been conspiring with the enemy. He was found guilty based on Bertillon's evidence and sentenced to life in prison. Hmm, so wrongly convicted because of Bertillon's analysis. Yeah. Uh, Bertillon was undone, though, by a group of French mathematicians. They highlighted a catalogue of errors in his testimony and accused him of shambolic pseudoscience. Dreyfus was, of course, retried, as we know, released from prison prison and later pardoned. But Bertillon always refused to acknowledge his mistake right up to his death in 1914. 
Sarah, French cinema is having a bit of a wobbly moment. Uh, the numbers of people going to the cinema went down by a third in September. It seems like the surge we had after COVID restrictions were lifted hasn't really lasted. Hmm. I wonder, I mean, is this what the, the quality of the films being shown or people just deciding to watch at home and online? Only a very clever person could answer that question. <laughs> what I can tell you, though, is that the release of Black Panther Wakanda Forever on the 9th of November in France is sure to pack in the ah, crowds. Sure. Cinemas here, however, have high hopes also for a homegrown biopic, Simone, a woman of the century. Right, about Simone Veil, the Holocaust survivor and French politician who died in 2017. And as we talked about in the podcast before, she now lies in the Pantheon. She is undoubtedly a French icon. She's admired for her, her courage, her dignity, maybe most famously known for pushing through a law to legalise abortion in 1974 when she was health minister. Before that, she was a magistrate. She helped to improve conditions in prisons, especially for women. She fought to protect the rights of immigrants, AIDS victims and prostitutes. She was also a committed European and she became the first elected president of the European Parliament in 1979. And she also fought relentlessly against the far right. Wow, so lots of material there for a biopic. Yeah, the film indeed is dense packs an awful lot into uh, its two hours and 20 minutes. Ah, pretty long. Yeah, the trailer gives you an idea of its scope. It begins in the south of France with an elderly Simone Veil in the garden overlooking the sea, writing her memoirs. Tu fais quoi? Tu crées un brouillon de ma vie. What are you doing? asks her granddaughter. I'm writing the draft of my life, she says. Whether we want it or not, whether we know it or not, we are responsible for what will unite us tomorrow. Then, in the National Assembly in 1974, Vale tries to overcome heckling male MPs. We want to put an end to clandestine abortions, she shouts. I am not afraid, she shouts, as far-right supporters make the fascist salute during her campaign rally in 1979. I survived much worse than you. I was your age, she tells her 16-year-old granddaughter on a visit to Auschwitz in 2004. Sounds like quite a roller coaster of a film. It is, and it isn't always easy to follow, Sarah, because it's not in chronological order. We begin with the fight to get abortion legalised, and the film ends with the death camps. There are constant flashbacks. Uh, the role of Simone is played by two actresses, Rebecca Marder up until 1962, and then Elsa Siebelstein from 62 onwards. The director, Olivier Dahan, who also wrote the script told RFI's VMDN programme that he let emotion be his guide for the chronology. The chronology is emotional rather than factual. I think a factual chronology is very limited. You can look at Wikipedia for that. I started writing from the first page through to the 150th page and then tried to film that. The film is a bit emotion-heavy for me personally. There's a, a lot of violins and piano to highlight the really sad or dramatic bits. Mm. And much of it is filmed in semi-darkness, which I guess is appropriate. 
because it does focus on some of the darkest moments of French history of the last century. Yeah, like the, the deportation of nearly 70,000 Jews from France to Nazi death camps. Simone Weil was just 16 when she was sent to Drancy here in France and then Auschwitz and finally to Bergen-Belsen in Germany. She and her sister Madeleine survived. Uh, their mother, Yvonne Jacob, didn't. Weil's father and brother were also deported elsewhere in Europe and she never saw them again. Dahan said he felt a need to make a biopic of Simone Weil. Some members of my family were deported to the camps. And I also grew up in a family of activists campaigning against racism and injustice. I reached a certain age where I wanted to talk about it, 15 to 25-year-olds maybe. I wanted to pass something on to the younger people. There's an ongoing debate, though, on how you should depict the Holocaust in films, especially when it isn't a documentary, the camps themselves. Um, how does this film deal with that? It's quite graphic, and some critics have objected to the way the film, for example, lingers on the women when they're having their hair uh, cut off, the sound of the scissors, you know, and the horrified mm. look of the other women as they're queuing up naked, waiting their turn. Bisuteria. And in this scene, female workers in the camps are removing the women's jewellery. Is that all? One of them says, if you're hiding anything, you won't survive the chimneys. Mm, sounds heavy. Yeah, and then later we see Vel's mother dying of typhoid with close-ups on her hollowed-out eyes. It's definitely uh, a bit uncomfortable, but Dan said that that was one of his aims, in fact. He said he didn't hesitate much over what to film. I didn't hesitate that much because I asked myself, have 15-year-olds seen Shoah by Claude Lanzmann? No. Have they seen Schindler's List? No. Have they seen The Pianist? I don't think so. So it was perhaps time to jog people's memories. And not talking about the camps was out of the question. We know so much about Simone Veil already. Did you learn anything from this film? What I found interesting was the silence around talking about the show. Mm. In the film, even Veil's Jewish husband tells her she's got to put all of this behind her. And that was very much the attitude at the time. Brush the horrors under the carpet. You survived. Get over it. Move on. Right. Veil didn't want to. And she rails against being forced to, to keep all of this in. And in a way that explains why the film ends with the camps and Vale returning there as an old woman. Another thing that stood out for me was the level of misogyny, Sarah, in mm. the 50s and 60s. I knew it was bad, but maybe not this bad. Um, how even Vale's husband, who was quite an enlightened man, didn't think it was appropriate for her to work as a lawyer. J'ai réfléchi toute la nuit et je veux devenir avocat. Tu sais ce que je pense des avocats On avait convenu qu'une fois ta carrière bien lancée. Je n'ai même pas fini Lena. Je veux travailler. I want to become a lawyer, she tells her husband. Ce n'est pas raisonnable. Je ne serai pas indépendante. I want to be independent. So she dug in her heels. She became a magistrate in 1956. All of that period, Sarah, was new to me. Uh, the work she did in the state penitentiary system, how she battled to improve its degrading conditions. Also how, during the Algeria war, she helped secure the transfer of prisoners, uh, members of the FLN movement for independence, who were being tortured, even raped by the French army. She helped them get transferred from Algiers to mainland France. So how has this film been received? A lot of critics have panned it. Uh, it's been called a blooper of a biopic, uh, indeed 
decent wooden airbrushed pedantic. Uh, some of the kinder reviews do credit, though, the two leading actors with turning in a good performance. Eric Schwalt, a teacher of French and a cinephile who writes for the online cinema review Sans Critique, said he loathed the film. Je trouve très mauvais parce que c'est un film qui est I think it's a very bad film. It's overwritten, the dialogue is extremely artificial, everything is demonstrative, nothing is natural. The acting is quite heavy and every scene serves to illustrate a point. There's a very revealing moment when Simone Weil is walking through a market and women stop her several times to thank her for what she's done for them. Every bit of that conversation feels like a paragraph from Wikipedia. The music is invasive. It's a very pedantic, melodramatic film. It doesn't work. Wow, he doesn't hold back any punches there. <laughs> no, as a critic. But as a father of a 14-year-old who's studying World War II at school, as are all French students in their last year of middle school, Schwalt has a different perspective. He saw the film with his son and found it useful. I thought it was good for him to know some details from Simone Weil's life, so I went to see it, for his sake. I explained some things and we talked afterwards about why she was so important in history. My son was quite bowled over by the death camps, the fight for abortion rights. He found the film instructive and interesting. And for me, that was the point. It's true that the themes in this film do seem to resonate with what's happening with abortion rights being rolled back in the United States and elsewhere in the world, concerns over increasing anti-Semitic attacks, uh, the rise of the far right in Europe. Perhaps, I mean, maybe it's aimed more at a younger audience rather than adult cinema buffs. Schwartz certainly thinks that the director, Olivier Dahan, is targeting a younger audience. Il a choisi son public de s'adresser au plus grand nombre et majoritairement aux plus jeunes et aux élèves. I think he's chosen his public, addressing mainly younger people and pupils. The film is definitely not made for cinema lovers, but for history teachers and their classes. It's even in the public interest. It had to be made because she was an incredible woman. It's no accident she's in the Pantheon. We know full well that pupils won't read biographies or memoirs of Simone Weil, so they can see this. It's very worthwhile. Worthwhile. Well, the rights have been bought by a US distributor, Sarah, so it could be released over there. We'll see if the Americans think the same. So we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr, or look for us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We're taking a bit of a break, and our next episode will be out on Thursday, November the 17th. Until then, why not explore our extensive archive? Yeah, find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Have a good break. Bye-bye, Sarah. <laughs>